Welcome to Deal Closers with Annette Tali, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Tali. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Tali, and my guest today is Mitch Jaworski. Welcome, Mitch. How are you, Annette? How's it going? I'm very excited to have you here today because we know each other. We are personal friends and we are in the same town here in uh, Florida. Yeah. And so we get to hang out together uh, at least twice a month in different meetups that we attend. So uh, you got to love the meetups. Excited. That's how we became friends. We met, we met at the meetups. See, networking. Got to network. So important. Networking has come up on every single uh, interview that, that I have done because it's so important. Your net, what is that? Your network is your net worth. That's like the uh, tagline going around now. Absolutely. Yes. So let me tell you a little bit about Mitch. After more than a decade of trading the stock market, Mitchell jumped into real estate investing in 2014. He focuses mainly on buying, renovating, renting, and refinancing properties, widely known as the Burr strategy. He takes a low-risk approach to investing and shares this method in his book, Scarity Cat Guide to Investing in, a rent, in Rental Properties, and in, at his, on his blog, scaritycatguide.com. So I welcome you to visit his website. He is a wealth of knowledge. Welcome, my friend. It's good to be here. The Deal. So we are going to talk today about, I am assuming, a burr property that you did. Yep, that is pretty much 90% of what I do. So tell me about it. What's the deal? Where is it located? What type of asset? Um, it is a two-family property. It is located in like mid-north Massachusetts, not too far from actually the New Hampshire uh, state line. And uh, it is very cold up there this time of year. Uh, and uh, yeah, we uh, originally saw it in January, February of 2019 was the first time it caught my eye. And then, um, you know, it, it was a long process, so to speak, in terms of it uh, becoming available again, becoming a short sale, us negotiating it and negotiating it. So uh, it was something that uh, really taught me a lesson in that. Patience is a virtue. Everyone wants to, you know, be rich tomorrow, but uh, sometimes deals fall to you, um, you know, over time or, or while you're doing other business. So, uh, you know, for me, it was sort of a lesson learned as well um, to just kind of keep plugging away at things, you know, keep doing business, keep doing other deals, but uh, you never know which deal in the pipeline is going to come back to you. And that's how we've actually gotten our last few properties of properties that have actually kind of come back to us after, um, you know, their initial uh, buyer or the the deal you know, wasn't wasn't able to close, so uh, that's that's been uh, nice to kind of have some fall in our laps, so to speak. Awesome. All right. So, how did you find this deal? Um, honestly, it was originally on the MLS. Um, like I said, in January, February of uh, last year, about exactly about a year ago at this point, um, it was on the MLS. It was listed for I think around one hundred thirty thousand. Um, my business partner, who is uh, local up in Massachusetts, went to look at it. Uh, we reviewed the deal and we made an offer on it at, uh, I think it was 120K. We made an offer. 
Uh, we didn't get the deal. It ended up going on the contract, um, and it stayed on the contract for some time. And I'm going to say maybe six months later, it came back on the market, but it came back on the market as a short sale, hmm. which was interesting to me because I was like, all right, what price you know, point does this person you know, become a short sale? Like, How much do they owe on it? Because when it got relisted as a short sale, it was listed at 99000 and I mean, I'll, I was, I'll pay 99 all day for this thing. I was ready to pay 120. So, um, I figured that the amount that the owner was underwater was probably somewhere, you know, around there, like, you know, hundred to low ones. I mean, because there wasn't a big spread between what it was originally listed for and what the, you know, short sale was. And you know how it was, how it is with the short sale listings. The price that it's listed at doesn't mean it's the price that um, it's going to sell for or the price the bank is going to approve. Um, it's basically a price that the real estate agent uses to get everyone excited to you know drum up interest and then hope you know that he can get it approved at that price. Um, so uh, yeah, when we started the short sale at ninety nine, uh, it was listed actually by a different agent at this point. So um, we reached out to that agent to see what the deal was and. Uh, you know, we ended up putting in, in an offer at, at 99 after uh, going to see it again, actually, because it had been so long. So we wanted to kind of go through all the work that it needed. So, yeah, that's how it all started. Uh, when it hit, uh, hit back to market, you know, we made an offer now uh, at the quote unquote, you know, listing price. And uh, that's what got the wheels in motion uh, on that property in terms of uh, trying to acquire it. Awesome. And, and for people that don't know what a short sale is, can you explain? Yeah, so basically um, what happens is, and, you know, we still see them. We don't see them the way we did back, you know, after the bubble burst in, you know, 08, um, where there was short sales left and right. But basically a short sale is when someone's trying to sell the property for less than they owe on it. And essentially the bank is who you're really negotiating with because they have to accept that offer and essentially say, all right, we're going to eat X amount uh, on the mortgage, which ends up just being a write-off for them. So um, let's just say, you know, for a hypothetical uh, example, um, someone owes 200000 on a home and they get a buyer that's willing to pay 150 for it. The bank then decides, all right, are we willing to accept 150 and eat a $50,000 loss, you know, on this loan um, or not? And that's really what it is, uh, you know, in terms of a simplistic, uh, you know, explanation. So... That's why they usually take a long time. Short sales, you know, I've seen take anywhere from six months to more than a year to get approved. Uh, the irony is on this one, it came together faster than any short sale I've seen before, which did throw me a curveball in terms of uh, getting the money to close on the deal in time. But, uh, you know, that's a whole nother question. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you ended up offering, offering 99. So you had there, right there, you already have some equity build in the deal. Yes. Yeah. I was excited at that price if we could get it approved. So that was the, I guess that's the, the next piece of it, you know? Right. So the, yeah, tell us, so what did you pay for and how did you negotiate this deal? So, so what happened was, um, in a way I actually, and I'd rather have negotiated uh, directly with the agent in the bank, but, um, this property, and it was in the listing that, uh, it was being handled by, uh, a, essentially a short sale mitigation company. There's companies out there that that's all they do is they basically negotiate short sales. So, I had to essentially, you know, just let them do their thing. And, you know, there was a set fee that they charged for it. Um, and, you know, all that was in the, literally in the description of the listing. And I was fine with that. So um, 
I dealt with them. They were kind of the middleman. And in the end, it actually ended up being pretty simple. And um, surprisingly, um, the bank countered at 105800 and I was like, all right, well, that still works. And the reason for that was because the owner uh, was on a VA loan. He was a veteran. And based on uh, some VA guidelines and standards, there was a certain amount that basically they needed to have at closing. Um, and in order to get that amount, basically the price worked out to 105800 uh, So I was like, all right, you know what? The numbers still work for me. I would have loved to get it, you know, obviously, you know, at 99 But uh, the numbers still worked. They were still less than I was originally going to pay for it. So I accepted the deal, um, and yeah, we ended up closing at 105800 and um, the thing was that from the time I put in the offer on the short sale uh, to the closing date was actually a four-month turnaround, which anyone that's done a short sale will say like, wow, that's really fast. Like, that never happened. Like, so honestly, I was planning on this deal closing, you know, earliest six months down the line, and I kind of set up my financing uh, in that way because I was working on another project and uh, the plan was to refi out of that one and then use that money to pay for this one and I will be in fact I'm actually in the process of refining out of that deal I should be hopefully closed uh, in a week or two and it would have been perfect because I was like all right per you know that's when I'll, I'll use that money to buy this one because there's no way I thought I was closing you know before before January and uh, long story short we actually closed um, a week before Christmas so uh, yeah we closed uh, it was about three weeks ago now, the time of this uh, this podcast. And so, how did you fund it? Well, so that was the thing. So now I'm scrambling a little bit because, for the most part, um, I have a set amount of working capital uh, that I, I built up over the years, and I've used that to finance my deals. Uh, and generally, what I'll do is I'll buy them cash with my own capital, and then I'll refi out and I'll just rinse and repeat. So this was the first time I had to borrow, I guess, short-term money up front. So. Um, I thought about doing the hard money lending thing. You know, I know some good hard money lenders. Um, there's nothing wrong with hard money if you need it. It's expensive, but if it gets you a deal that's a good deal, then you know it's just the cost of doing business. So uh, no, I looked at. Let me, let me stop you there because we were talking about private money on the previous uh, interview. Yes. So tell me is... what's hard money for people that don't know. Okay, so yeah, I mean, it's funny because you have all these terms that get thrown around: hard money, private money, and in a way, they're kind of one and the same. But when someone refers to hard money, basically what they're talking about is generally a loan of 12 months or less. It's an interest-only loan. And usually you're going to pay some points up front and you're going to pay usually a higher interest because since it's a short-term loan, I mean, the, that, that hard money lender, you know, they need to make a profit somehow. So for the most part, the interest rate standard is 10 to 12% and you're looking at like two to three points and it's... Um, it's impacted by the amount of experience you have and if you've done any business with that hard money lender before. Um, but it's generally, like I said, short-term, interest-only, with a balloon payment at the end, um, as opposed to when people refer to private money, that's usually longer-term loans. Um, I'm working actually, when I refi out of properties, I generally use private lenders um, because I don't have a W-2, so it's hard for me to get uh, business uh, from traditional banks since I'm, you know, quote unquote, self-employed as a full-time real estate investor. And um, that private money, you'll be able to get long-term loans, even 30-year loans, and your rates will be more, you know, a uh, traditional long-term rate. It'll be higher than, you know, your, uh, your um, mainstream bank. But these days, 
it's not so bad to spread. You know, you're, you're paying maybe a point or two uh, higher uh, in terms of interest rate. So uh, it's been nice to see uh, that space get more competitive because the rates have come down. So yeah, that's the main difference, you know. And, uh, and when you're hard. using hard money or private money, it doesn't really go in your credit, right? As if you were using- That is what's beautiful about hard money and, and, and private money is that you can borrow, like for instance, if you own properties in uh, an LLC, you can borrow under the LLC um, and that loan isn't gonna hit your you know, credit report. Um, a lot of lenders do want a personal guarantee from you. Uh, which is fine. I don't. I don't mind giving a personal guarantee because the bottom line is that's not going to hit my credit unless I default on the loan, and I don't plan on going out of business. Um, so uh, finger, fingers crossed. So um, if uh, I make payments and I'm good on the loan, then I never have to worry about it hitting my personal credit, uh, which is great because now um, I can essentially use my personal credit profile to help get funds, but it's not going to impact uh, my personal credit. So uh, I will say. I'm happy that I have a good credit score because that does impact the rate with, uh, especially with the private lenders. Um, they have tiers and basically, you know, your rate moves based on those tiers. So luckily my credit score is a top tier, so I'll get the best rate. But as far as your personal information, that's really all they care about is your credit score uh, to help determine your rate. After that, it's all about the property. Um, and as long as the numbers on the property work, uh, then you should be able to secure financing uh, in your LLC, which is great. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to let you continue. Our, you were talking about the, the hard money. Oh, yeah. So how I ended up funding the deal. Yeah. So uh, I was looking at the hard money lenders. Um, you know, I know some uh, from some of the meetups I go to. Um, but also, uh, I even have a friend that I met from a meetup years ago um, who ended up kind of becoming a hard money lender himself. Uh, he did a deal with uh, another friend of mine that, you know, had come to the, the meetup and uh, that kind of set him off. In the hard money path so I, I reached out to him we were looking to do something and then uh, it turned out that uh, and first time I've ever kind of done business with family uh, my brother uh, recently had a chunk of money free up and it was kind of just sitting in the bank doing nothing so I told him like hey listen you know I'm looking for money for about 60 days um, I got to close on this property I got another refi going I was just like do you uh, you know you want to make you know some some interest you want to make some money on your uh, on your money and you know he's always up for that because he actually uh, kind of flips cars on the side he's a car guy so uh, he was like sure he's like I got I got more than I need to use for that so uh, I ended up doing a deal with my brother actually um, to get the because uh, I had about fifty to sixty percent of the money uh, myself so I essentially needed the rest of it so uh, he basically gave me the other forty percent um, and you know we came to terms on you know what the uh, deal was going to be. And, you know, that was it, you know, that's simple. Um, hadn't raised money from, from family before, but uh, yeah, so I took, like I said, I took my money that I had, my working capital, I still had left over. I took the remaining amount I got from my brother um, and basically turned my brother into my hard money lender. Um, Amazing. Yeah, and, and I will admit the, the, the terms were better than if I used a hard money lender because, you know, he doesn't do that for a living. So like the terms he's getting are much better than what he could do with his money otherwise. I mean, he was thinking about putting it into like a six month CD or something. I was like, no. Nah, 2%, 1%. No. I'm like, no. I'm like, let's make you way more money in like, you know, half the time frame. So uh, yeah. Um, and, and that's that's the, the beauty of this hard money and, and private money. It's all negotiable. You know, uh, depending uh, uh, on, on the other options they have. If they, they are thinking about putting their money on a CD, which is 1% versus yeah. getting like 6%, you know. 
the, it's going to be appealing, 8%, 10%. And that's the thing too. I mean, I had to get comfortable with that even, you know, years ago in terms of, you know, private money. It's just when you're not dealing with a bank um, and you're dealing with a private lender or even just, you know, someone in your network that has money to lend, like Annette said, it's completely negotiable and, you know, the terms or whatever you guys agree to. So it's great because you can find that, you can find a win-win situation, you know, and that's essentially what I was able to do. I was able to find money that was going to cost me less, but at the same time, provide a better return for someone else. And that's a win-win. I love win-win situations. I look for them all the time because, you know, I feel like in negotiations, people always think that has, there has to be one winner and one loser. And that's completely wrong. Like you can find those win-wins where both parties are benefit, benefiting from it. And, um, you know, that's a, a big part of, uh, I don't know if you ever read the book, um, Never Split the Difference. Absolutely. Such a good book. It. So, uh, yeah, nice. I, I actually need to reread it again. It's been like two years and I think, you know, a lot of the principles kind of like, you know, have faded a bit. So, but yeah, so that's how I ended up finding the money for the deal. Um, I had no problems going hard money. I was, I was literally, you know, had already started doing the, uh, paperwork and whatnot to do that. But then I saw an opportunity to essentially save a good chunk of money and, uh, you know, kind of get my brother a good return. So I ended up going that route. Um, but uh, yeah, otherwise I would have used hard money. There's nothing wrong with using hard money. Um, if it gets you the deal, um, take it because I'd rather spend a few extra thousand dollars and get a good deal than not get a good deal at all. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So um, I have my last question, but I, I wanted to get back into, you were talking that uh, they listed it for 99, but then they wanted 105, 800, but the numbers still work. When you say that, what do you mean that numbers still worked? Okay, so basically there's two things I look at. Um, and, you know, from day one, I kind of started, I was doing the Burr strategies uh, as my investment thing before I even heard of what Burr was or before maybe it was even a tagline. But, you know, the whole, you know, you buy, you renovate, you rent it out, and then you refinance. Um, so what I'll look at um, is, A, I'm going to look at, in a way, it, it's similar to like a flipper. Like you want to know what your ARV is going to be. Like what is my after repair value after I've done uh, all the renovations on this property? So um, I looked at the ARV and I knew that um, what I'll do is I always take, I'll, I'll do like a range um, because I want to take a, a conservative approach. I mean, that's why, you know, uh, um, my book is called Scaredy Cat Guide and my website because I have a risk averse approach because um, I basically don't want to overexpose myself, you know, so uh, I run into trouble. Uh, I like to kind of do the slow and steady, safe, uh, you know, kind of route of investing uh, and build wealth uh, over time. And I looked at it. I was like, all right, um, it's tough to run comps in this area because it's, there's not a lot of, it's not very cookie cutter, you know, down in South Florida where we are, it's pretty simple. It's very cookie cutter down here uh, on the Northeast. You have a lot of older homes that a lot of stuff that's different. Um, so I was looking at the ARV. I'm like, all right, this thing literally could appraise for anything from 150 to 200,000. So I'm going to just assume, you know, 150 is my worst case, you know, and doesn't make sense. Um, and it still did in that I knew I didn't have to put a ton of money into it. I mean, honestly, we're going to end up putting probably 10 grand into this property. Um, so the goal for me is I want to be able to refinance all my money out and still cash flow. And basically, if I'm able to do that now, A, I have 25% equity in the property because I'm, I'm generally doing a 75% loan to value with these private lenders. Um, B, I have my money out of it. So now 
my cash on cash return technically is infinity because I have zero dollars in the deal. Um, and then I still want to be able to cash flow. My, my goal is always to get at least $100 a door. So even at 150, when I ran the numbers, it still worked. So I was like, all right, sweet. Worst case, worst case scenario, I'm still good. I can get my money out of it. Um, I can cash flow. Actually, this thing's going to cash flow very well. It's actually going to uh, beat those uh, cash flow numbers um, by a, a good chunk. So that's essentially my starting point. You know, what is my ARV? And that's as simple as, you know, uh, um, just looking at other listings uh, on, 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 you know, sites as simple as Zillow or having an agent run comps for you. Um, you know, I have my license down in Florida, so uh, I'm used to running comps, so I can kind of get an idea um, even just using uh, information on the internet because um, you can still see, you know, uh, recently sold uh, homes, you know, on sites like Realtor.com and Zillow. So once I have that idea, you know, I kind of use that as my anchor and then I'll go from there. And then as far as, you know, uh, figure out cash flow, that's a whole, you know, another topic in terms of running numbers and using a property calculator and all that good stuff. But yeah, so in the end, like I said, find my ARV and then, all right, am I going to be able to refi out all of my money based on this? So with the 105.8 um, purchase price and after closing costs, you know, I was in for like 110. I need to put in 20, you know, 10K. So that puts me at 120. It's like, all right, well, that for the most part works, even if I can only get 150, which is worst case scenario. I'm pretty sure it's going to praise for um, a good chunk above 150. But, and that's it. It's at, the, at that point, it's like, all right, what's, you know, is 75% uh, of, you know, 150 pretty much all my money? It's, it's right about, you know, it's right in that ballpark. Um, so, worked for me. Uh, I saw, quote unquote, the worst case scenario, uh, still um, satisfied, you know, what I was looking to do. And, uh, you know, I was able to push forward. Obviously, um, you know, the renovation part is a whole nother, you know, story because that question comes up a lot from uh, new investors. Like, oh, well, how do I estimate my, my renovation costs? And it's tough because you want to give them like a magic answer, but there isn't. It, it comes from experience. I mean, there are standards out there. Like, what is it? Like $18 per square foot, I think maybe is the number. I would think 13. it will vary per area too because materials are different, labor is different. 100%. And that's why it's hard to use like, you know, a rule of thumb because, you know, and I've experienced that between investing in Florida and Massachusetts. I mean, my cost, you know, my plumbing costs are vastly different between those two states. So um, that's something that's hard. And the only way you really, I always tell people, experience is the best teacher. So, I mean, you want to learn, you know, you want to listen to podcasts, you want to read books. Um, I've done all that, you know, when I first started, uh, especially, and, and I still educate myself now, but experience is the best teacher. You know, like if someone comes to me for mentorship, I can only teach you so much. Like you're going to learn things that I haven't experienced because experience is the best teacher. So, um, you know, the best you can do is ask other people to, to get a general idea and then get quotes, you know, just when, when you have an inspection period, Use that to not just get the property inspected, but to have contractors come in and give you bids. I mean, because you want to get a few bids anyway um, on jobs. And that's how you can kind of estimate your, your, reno your renovation costs. So yeah, those are the especially, bids. Yeah. Especially the things that scare you, right? Like if you don't have yes. experience, like when I started, I always brought a roofer because roofs scare me. You know, they could be very expensive in Florida. So I always bring my roofer. Um, you know, termites in Florida, you know, mm. I make sure that the inspection has termites. Uh, they check for termites to make sure that the wood is, is good. And yep. so you just bring the people, the electrician, that's the other thing. Always check for electrical problems, aluminum wires. So, 
you know, have an inspection and, and take that time to bring other people to give you prices. And, and then you're going to be able to have a, a, a better understanding of what you're going to need. 100%. And that makes sense. I mean, like you said, things that scare you. I mean, for me, um, we're doing a project up there that essentially we took it down to the studs. And that's actually really the most comprehensive uh, renovation I've ever done. And, you know, we had to put in brand new plumbing, brand new electrical, um, you know, this the home was built in 1900. So everything was just old and broken. And so that uh, was beyond anything I'd done. So I mean, we, we had, we called a lot of plumbers, we had a lot of plumbers come out and we got quotes that were all over the board. And you know, if we just went with the first guy that, you know, came through and gave us a quote, we would have spent uh, over six grand uh, more than, than what we ended up uh, settling on with uh, a, a different plumber. Uh, so it's good to get bids and you can definitely learn a lot in terms of what things will cost uh, on projects. All right. All right. So uh, for the, you know, I know what your exit strategy is because I know you, but rent it out. What are you doing with this property once all this bird system is, is done? Yeah. So, so the ultimate goal is, uh, like I said, we're going to get uh, tenants into, uh, into the two units and then we'll refi out. And then once that money's refied out, you know, we're going to look to do the next one. And um, really the end goal is to, uh, Add it to our portfolio, build our cash flow. Um, as far as um, my LLC uh, up there with uh, my partner, um, our end goal is basically um, more. It's just to keep building the rental portfolio, and we're looking to either sell, you know, thirty years from now, you know, when we're old and gray, or uh, you know, um, you know, leave the properties to uh, you know the next generations. Um, so my business partner's got to. That's very important when you're working with a partner to have that same goal. You know, yes. because one partner could want to sell in five years and you, you want to hold it and build wealth. So you got to be on the same page when you are doing these partnerships. And you know what? And just to touch on that real quick, um, you know, I, I, I kind of was a, a lone ranger uh, my first four years of investing um, because I'm just whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm a control freak. I don't know what it is. But uh, it took me some time to finally partner up with someone. And, you know, I will admit, like, my partner is a good friend of mine. It's someone I've known since I was a teenager um, and someone whose family is basically like my second family. So for me, trust is a big thing. And that's one thing I knew is that in the end, like, I could trust him. And, you know, we had a similar uh, vision on what we wanted to do. And that's not to say we still didn't lay out a comprehensive operating agreement. Um, you know, that's part of our LLC. That's definitely out there because, you know, you definitely want to make sure that your exit, exit strategy is in paper because things change, you know, life happens. Uh, and sometimes you have to, uh, you know, uh, go a route you aren't planning to. So, um, it's good that uh, you have that laid out. And it's also good to find someone that, you know, is also kind of flexible to, you know, doing what's best for the business. And, uh, we have a property that we're actually going to flip. So we have a property that went from, a bird till we realize that you know what this will be way more beneficial as a flip because a it's a single family and we're not trying to add more single families to the portfolio um, we want to really focus on the small multifamily exclusively and um, we're not gonna be able to get all our money out of it um, so I was just like you know what this is starting to look like a good flip and we'll be able to make a good uh, a pretty penny on it as a flip and get while the getting is good. You know, the market's, uh, you know, strong right now. Real estate keeps appreciating. So uh, we're going to strike when the iron's hot and we're going to turn it into a flip and uh, I guess add that to the resume. So it's good. It's good. And we're both on the same page with it. So it's good to, you know, to find someone that is also open-minded and flexible to, to shift when uh, things change. Because 
everything's not going to go according to plan in business. Uh, that's just the way it is. Awesome. Expert tips. And now we are coming to the part where you're going to give me three tips. And oh boy. Mitch doesn't like risk. So he's going to give us three tips on how to invest conservatively. Yes. And you know what? Risk is relative. So, you know, what I might think is risky, someone else might not and vice versa, because I openly admit like the risk that I'm willing to take now is very different than the risk I was willing to take when I first started investing. But that's also because a lot of those things that I thought were super risky, I'm now comfortable doing because I have the experience, I've gone through it. Um, and I understand, you know, the process. So, um, really the big thing for me is, you know, I tell people not to get over leveraged. Um, and that's not to say I don't use leverage. In fact, right now, um, I'm actually leveraged pretty good, uh, as I wait for another refinance to get, uh, completed. Um, but what I mean by that is I always have equity in my property. Um, I know a lot of people, um, will buy properties. Uh, a lot of times they'll do even like a live in a live-in flip or something like that so they can buy it FHA, 3.5% down, all that goodness. Um, I like having more equity in my property than that. Um, I always have 20 to 25% equity in my property. Um, so that buffer lets me kind of just sleep well at night because I know even if the market turns down, I still have a buffer. Um, you know, and if God forbid for some reason I have to sell a property, I know that I'm not going to be essentially selling at a loss. I'm not going to have to come out of pocket uh, or do a short sale, you know, to, to be able to unload that property. So um, I like having that equity. Um, plus, then you have to deal with PMI. Um, I hate what I call uh, junk expenses, so to speak. And, uh, you know, purchase, what is it? Purchasers mortgage insurance. Uh, that's what PMI stands for. Uh, basically, you're going to be forced to, to hold that uh, generally anytime you have a loan where there's less than 20% equity in the property. Um, you know, for the most part with traditional lenders, obviously private lenders aren't going to lend usually for uh, less than 20% equity. So that's another expense that eats into your cash flow, you know, and that can cost anywhere from a hundred to, you know, a few hundred thousand a month. And it's a good chunk of money. I mean, that could be all your cash flow. So, um, yeah, um, I basically have a rule of, you know, 20 to 25% equity in my property. Obviously that does mean you need to have down payment money, uh, which, you know, sometimes is difficult. Um, I was lucky to be able to, you know, kind of save that money up front and uh really have used it over and over again um so it's like once you have that kind of nut to work with just you know leverage that like i leveraged the heck out of that um as opposed to over leveraging myself and you know basically being 90 percent uh you know financed um right so yeah that's kind of how I, I play it safe so don't try not to over leverage yourself use leverage but don't over leverage um especially because when we get a downturn if that happens at some point you're going to be you know you're going to be sweating a bit. Um, and then um, with that said, there's something that I always preach and you know, you know, when we go to our meetups is using a property calculator. You know, that would be the second thing that I, I really preach. And that's, you know, being able to run your numbers kind of lets you know if you're over leveraged uh, and, and if you can cash flow. So um, I have a property calculator on my website, uh, scaredcatguide.com. Um, and it's a basic rental property calculator. And there's, default allocations in there for vacancy, maintenance, reserves. And these are the things that I didn't know when I first started investing. I mean, when I bought my, bought my first rental property, I had no idea about, you know, allocating for vacancy and, and reserves and things like that. So um, I live and die by that rental property calculator. That is actually the tool that got me to stop being a scaredy cat because I'll look at the numbers 
and then basically look at it as a pass fail. It's like, all right, am I getting the you know cash flow that I want per month? Is it meeting my minimum cash flow? Um, and if not, then I know that a I have to offer much less on the property, or B, it's not going to work, and I just need to move on and look at the next one. So, um, especially for anyone new out there, um, I would lean on a property calculator. They're they're everywhere. Um, you know, you can find one online. It's not my website. There's a bunch of others that have them. Um, some are even more comprehensive. I keep mine nice and simple um, and free. And free, yeah, yeah. It's free to use. Um, I honestly put it. I, I, I put it on the web for myself out of convenience to be honest with you and then i was like you know what i can share this now because uh, i used to run around with my laptop with an excel spreadsheet and you know sometimes you know you go look at a property you know on a whim and i was like oh crap i don't have my my calculator with me so i decided to put it on what was originally my blog that has evolved into a, a website um so yeah feel free to use it uh if, if you're listening um and then uh third thing is hmm i don't even know to be risk adverse, huh? I really, I really got my two. I mean, the third, really, honestly, is it's funny because it almost sounds like the opposite. But like, don't be afraid to partner up. Like we talked about this earlier about partnering up. Um, you know, don't be too scared. Uh, as 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 ironic as it sounds, is that you know it's good to be risk adverse. It's good to invest prudently because then you know you drastically reduce the risk of essentially getting blown up like a lot of people did in 07, 08. Um, but at the same time, don't be too scared. You know what I mean? Don't be uh, afraid to partner up with people um, because a lot of times you have a roadblock that can be overcome by partnering up with someone. And we see it a lot uh, when we go to meetups. There's a lot of people that uh, find deals but don't have the money or find deals but don't have the down payment. And then you have a lot of people that have you know a nine-to-five job that you know have funding but don't have the time to find a deal. So partner up, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, And you're just, sharing there, when you're partnering up, you are also sharing the risk. So it's just not see? you by yourself. Well, a valid point. You're diversifying the risk um, by partnering up. Um, so there's, there's uh, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. So uh, yeah, I mean, now you're splitting the deal, but at the same time, you're getting a deal. And like I said, you're splitting the risk. So um, a lot of people always think about just the plus side. They're like, oh, I got to give up some of the deal. It's like, well, you're also giving up some of the risk too. Mm -hmm. So valid point, Annette. But yeah, so those are really the three things for me. Don't over leverage yourself. You know, use a property calculator. Like I said, my property calculator is my rock. It's what has led me to be able to take emotion out of the decision because, you know, I'd be so scared. And, you know, my first, the first three properties I closed on, I freaked out when I walked away from the closing table. I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? You know? And they all turned out to be good deals, but you're just, you're always scared that you made a mistake. And then, you know, and like, you know, and the third thing, you know, don't be too scared, you know, partner up if, if that's what um, will help you be able to move forward on a deal. And, uh, you know, in a way, in essence, you're diversifying your risk by uh, partnering up. So it is also, you know, lending into that, uh, you know, prudent uh, investing style. So, yeah, I like that. Awesome. And how can people find you? Um, obviously there's a social media scaredy cat guide. Um, you can find me on Facebook, um, and also Instagram, even though I got to get better about posting on there. Um, and then there's my website, scaredycatguide.com. Um, you can find, uh, my blog there. You can find the rental property calculator there and you can even find me on Amazon. I got the good old book. 
Scaredy Cat Guide, Investing oh, in Rental Properties. I got to get my autograph uh, copy. You got to get your autograph copy. So yeah, that's out uh, on, uh, you can find it on my website. You can also uh, grab it on Amazon. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much uh, the ways to find me. And uh, if you're ever in South Florida, come to a local meetup. I'm usually at most of them. So there's yeah, some good ones. True. I can vouch for that. <laughs> yeah, Annette, Annette, Annette runs a good one. So uh, if you're uh, down in South Florida, multifamily and more meetup, it's, uh, it's where it's at. Awesome. Thank you, my friend. I'm so happy to have you on the show. And thank you for adding so much value to my audience. And I will see you at the next meetup. Bye. Yes. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. This was Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.